Let's get our Bibles out, open to John chapter 17. John 17. There's a, if you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, you can just grab that black pew Bible in front of you there. It's page 1245. John 17. So we're in this section of John, the upper room discourse. We're calling this part of the Gospel of John, Lean In. We have an opportunity to lean in and sort of listen in to Jesus giving His final commands to His disciples before the cross. And so this morning we get an opportunity to lean way in as we come to John chapter 17, which is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. This is our only uh, recorded conversation between Jesus and the Father. Uh, We have these 20 some odd verses of just dialogue and so much can be gleaned from this passage of Scripture. Let's pray and then we'll talk about what God has to show us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this morning. All that has been done and said so far, Lord, it's all for Your glory. Now, Lord, we're going to turn to Your Word and we pray that You'd give us ears to hear that we might receive the things that You have for us, Lord. Thank You that You've given us this gift to hear You, Lord Jesus, talk to the Father. And we are grateful. Help us to know and understand the things You want to show us today. Thank You for each one here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has been going through this sequence of um, just preparatory conversations, if you will. He's getting the disciples ready for His departure. And He's telling them all the things that they need to know. And last week we talked about untakeable joy. And how over and over Jesus would talk about joy. And how uh, He came to offer us His joy. The fullness of joy. And as we sort of turn to this John 17, my goodness, uh, this this particular chapter of Scripture has it, it definitely altered my life. When I first uh, came to the place where I discovered this chapter of Scripture, it changed me. And uh, it set my life on a different course. I, when I began to understand as a young Christian what was here and the potential and just thinking through, I mean, I, I spent several months just thinking about these things in John 17. And so I hope as we just sort of enter into this passage, uh, you, your hearts are filled with anticipation. The great German preacher Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you probably heard of him, he called John 17 a thunderbolt fallen from the sky. That's pretty much what it is. But before we can jump into John 17, we have to just remember where we left off. We have to have some context as to what's going on. And uh, remember, you can look back at how chapter 16 ended, where Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you that you may have peace. That in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. So Jesus sort of leads into this time of of prayer with Him and the Father with sort of this statement uh, reminding His disciples that He's overcome the world. That no matter what the attacks are, Jesus is saying, that we have nothing to fear. We 
We bear witness to a sovereign God who is a good God who loves us and is watching over us. And so, uh, why is he saying these things? I mean, uh, he's preparing his disciples. He's, he's reminding them that of things that really they don't understand yet, but they're going to understand here very shortly. And he wants them to know that we're, we're soldiers and we've been enlisted in a, in a battle to fight the good fight, to resist the devil, and to uh, take advantage of the access we've been granted to the armor of God. And if we ignore this, if we just sort of, if, if we just meander through life, if Christians don't understand the things that Jesus is relaying to His disciples, if the disciples forget this, or if some disciples down the road from here forget this, there's going to be unnecessary casualties. There's going to be uh, people who squander such a great opportunity. And so we need to be reminded this morning that as we look at this passage of Scripture that, you know, the moment of our salvation, things change. And a lot of things change beyond just our eternity. It's not just our eternity that changes its salvation, but it's our existence in this present world changes. Our purpose changes. Our reason changes. Everything changes. And so as God's children who live now under an open heaven, we don't, we're in this in-between, this no-man's land, if you will. We're between two opposing kingdoms. We're, we, we know there's the kingdom to come, but there's also this earthly kingdom that we're stuck in. And so it's like being between the world in which we were born into and the world in which we were reborn into. So we live at this crossroads. There's struggle. In other words, it's Jesus isn't saying in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world because things are going to be easy. He's letting us know that things are going to be difficult. And, but He's overcome the world, and that's important information. So here's the question. The question that you have to ask yourself before you ever read John 17, verse 1 is, why do the disciples need courage? Why is Jesus over and over saying things to give these 11 men courage? What is so important about them being courageous? What is it that lies ahead for them that is going to require that they know all of these things that He's telling them? Why is He so concerned about His disciples being ready? Ready for what? For what? What is this? I mean, if, the, if there's going to be tribulation and you're God and you can do anything, why don't you just take us with you? Why are you leaving? And why are you telling us that it's better for you to leave because you're going to give us a helper? It's, well, what is all of this about? And the central thing that we have to establish in our hearts as we look at John 17 is, Simply this, that the purpose of a disciple, so if you have your listening guide, you can fill these 
first blanks in. The purpose of a disciple is to continue the work of Jesus. That's the purpose of a disciple. And so Jesus, everything makes sense that He's telling His disciples in the context of you are going to continue the work that I've begun. All the things that I've been doing, that's what you're going to do after I leave. And so a disciple has a very distinct purpose. Okay. John 17, verse 1. It's almost hard to get past the very first phrase. Jesus spoke these words. Lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, it doesn't actually say in John 17, that Jesus is praying, although He is. But it says that He lifted up His eyes to heaven. And I think we should just stop here for a minute and, and just have a brief conversation about... Imagine this moment. There's the Son of God looking up as if to say... Father, I know you're with me, but I'm looking up as if you're, you're over me. Maybe, maybe it would be beneficial for us to just consider the value of maybe tonight when the sun goes down, you should walk out into your backyard and just... Look up at the heavens and have a conversation with God. You know, I've read John 17 so many times I couldn't even keep count, but it takes about between six and seven minutes to read the chapter. So there's a six or seven minute conversation between two persons of the Trinity. And one of them is standing on the ground looking up at heaven. And it just makes me think it would be helpful for us sometimes to just go out into God's creation and look up at the sky and just have a conversation with Him. And say, God, I know You're above me. I know and recognize that You are higher than me. But I also know that You love me. And I know that you hear me and just talk to him because that's what Jesus is doing. He's just talking to the father. So he's going to to pray and really he's going to pray three things. The, we won't get into all this, but just so that you know where we'll eventually end up. He's going to pray for himself in the first five verses. He's going to pray for his 11 disciples specifically in verses six through 19 and then in the Final verses, 20 to 26, he's going to pray for specifically for you and me. And each of these three sections, each of these three areas of prayer are best thought of as like three concentric circles, each one larger than the one prior to. And at the center of those is this issue of purpose and meaning and eternal life. And so Jesus 
will begin by saying, he, he spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he says, Father. He calls God Father. He says, the hour has come. What hour? Well, the hour he's been talking about. Every time he talks about the hour, he's talking about the hour of his execution. He's talking about the, the crux of history. He's talking about the forever moment of all time. The hour in which the perfect Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who lived a perfect sinless life, is going to die on a cross. He's going to become sin for you and for me. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that He made Him who knew no sin, that would be Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. So that's the hour he's talking about. By becoming sin, he's going to be separated from the Father. Now you have to think about this. What Jesus, is? he knows what's coming. And so when he says, Father, the hour has come, he knows everything that this hour is going to be. He knows all the things that this hour comprises. Yet, he's realizing that he's going to be for the first time in all of eternity separated from the Father. That this temporary breaking of relationship is going to be agonizing. The perfect unity, the perfect harmony that existed and has always existed and exists right now between the Trinity, this perfect love that they have for one another since the foundation of the world is going to be severed. And so if you look all the way down to verse 24, you can see where he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, and so throughout this prayer, you see his concern about this separation of this perfect relationship that he has with the father. So in that moment, when the sin of the world is placed upon him and his blood is shed for those who would repent and place their faith in him, the perfect plan of the Father to reconnect with his creation will be set in motion and completed when he rises from the dead. So when he he says, Father, the hour has come. You've got to understand all the weight that is hanging on this moment. So Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Now think about this. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He's asking for something, but he's also giving the reason and the purpose for which he's asking. He's saying, I'm asking for something that I might turn it around and put it back to you. That the cross is hanging over his head. And he prays to be able to glorify the Father, to show how amazing the Father is. Now, in order to make any headway at all in John 17, you have to have two uh, 
definitions. You, you need to understand two words. The, the first word is glorify. You need to understand the word glorify. It means to magnify, to put on display, or to draw attention to. That word, when Jesus says, glorify me that I may glorify you, He means magnify. He means put on display. He means draw attention to the Father. That any attention that the Father gives Him, He simply wants to turn it back around and give that magnification to the Father. The second term would be sanctify. That word is all over John 17. And to sanctify means to set apart for a special purpose or for God's purpose. To sanctify something means to, to, to make it holy, to set it aside for a special purpose, that it would be used for something very special and significant. Now those two words are important for us to understand as we sort of talk through this. So when Jesus says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. He's saying, Father, I want you to be seen for who you are. But he's also telling us what's on his heart and what's on his mind in this moment. That you know yourself oftentimes when you uh, spend time with the Lord in prayer... When there's something pressing on you, you, you usually aren't talking about that at the end of the prayer. You're coming before God and there's something pressing and you're bringing that before Him. You're not mincing words. You, you have something you want to say. Jesus has something He wants to say. Glorify the Father. That's what's on my mind. So, verse 2 says, He wants to do this as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given for me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. So what is on Jesus' mind as He's approaching the cross, as He's realizing He's about to get separated from the Father, as all of the, the, the horrific things that are about to happen to Him, He's fully aware of all of these things and what is central on His mind is glorifying the Father. And we need to be more specific. What exactly does that mean? How is He going to bring glory to the Father? Well, I would say it this way. The central reason Jesus went to the cross was to obey the mission of the Father. You see, the cross is the mission of the Father. Jesus is going to the cross. He's willfully walking to be a human sacrifice for us in obedience to the Father. Now, that means several things. That means that we weren't the preeminent thing on the mind and heart of Jesus as He went to the cross. Now, yes, we're the beneficiaries of His obedience, no doubt. And yes, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. That's true as well. And He did die 
for my sin and for your sin. That is true. But we need to be very careful when we're talking about Jesus going to the cross that we're never saying that when Jesus went to the cross, we were more important than God. We need to be careful about that because Jesus is very specific whenever He talks about what He's about to do, that He's doing it in obedience to the Father. So what's on His mind in this moment is obeying the Father. So when you woke up this morning, I wonder what was foremost on your mind? What was the preeminent, dominant thought on your mind and your heart when you woke up? As you began your day, as you began to do the things that you needed to do to to get here, all the things that that comprised. When you walked into this room this morning, made your way to a place, found a place to sit down, what was foremost on your mind? As you wake up tomorrow morning and start your week, what is going to be foremost on your mind this week? What will captivate the majority of your thoughts? What will be the preeminent thing that is captivating your emotions and your thoughts? Is it the glory of your Father in heaven? Do you find yourself thinking about, God, how can I glorify you? How can I magnify you? How can I put you on display? How can I live my life in such a way that people who know me might know you better? It makes me think about some things. It makes me look inside myself and ask myself some hard questions. It also makes me ask some broad sweeping questions questions about this whole conversation. It makes me think, now why would God create us in the first place? Well, I mean, why are we here? You know, at what point was there a conversation that when something like, well, here's what we need to do. Let's create Man, let's create this world, let's create man, let's put him in it. Why? Because certainly what John 17 makes clear to me is that there was, no, there was nothing lacking in God. It wasn't that God needed something that only we could give or fulfill because God is not in need of anything. And the reason He's not in need of anything is because He's He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the, in the midst of the Trinity that has always existed for all of time. There's perfect community. There's perfect love. There's perfect joy. There's perfect togetherness, right? So God has never existed apart from perfect love and perfect community and perfect joy. He's never existed apart from that. You see... Uh, a false God, a, a God, 
a, a made-up God like every other God that you could ever hear of, except for the God of the Bible is the only triune God. Any other God couldn't be a God of love because whenever He started, He was by Himself. And how can someone by themselves love if you're by yourself? Did you ever think about that? Who, was they, who were they loving? But you see, our God has always existed in perfect community, perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect joy. So if that's the case, it begs the question, what's with all this? Why us? If, if there's agony about being separated, which clearly there is, we know because... In the very next chapter, Jesus will, will pray. Take this cup from me. But what does He say? Not my will be done, but your will. You see, He's just obeying the Father. But why? Why, why are we here? There can only be one reason. There can only be one reason. And it's probably not the reason that you're thinking of. God did not create the world to get joy. He didn't do that. He already had joy. God created it to share His joy. So likewise, God did not Create the world to get love. He already had that. And he certainly didn't want our love because he has perfect love. He created the world to share his perfect love. So the reason that he created the world is to share what he already had. That's the only possible thing that makes any sense. And so if you just keep thinking about this, what you eventually come to is now you're starting to understand why Jesus is saying all these things to His disciples. Why He's making sure that they're prepared for everything that's going to come. Why failure is not an option. Because He created all of this to share what He has. And guess what? We are the sharers. We are. You and me. How is, the, how is the love of God going to get to people who don't have it? How is the joy of God going to get to people who don't have it? What is, the, what is the pipeline through which those things are going to travel? What is the mechanism of delivery that God has designed? Now you begin to see the essence of the critical nature of all the things that Jesus is saying to these 11 men because He's preparing them because He knows they are the sharers. They are the conduit through which all of this whole purpose that's existing is going to flow. If you look back down to verse 22, Jesus says, "In the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. See, he's talking about his perfect community and togetherness. That I and them... And you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that they would, that they may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
You see, God wants to share what he's always had. You see, the only thing that can make love better, the only thing that can make perfect love more special is to share that love with someone else. You see, the only thing that can make that, that's better than joy is causing someone else to be filled with joy. Right? Jesus said there's no greater love than what? To lay down your life for your brother. Yeah. You see, when you share what you have, something amazing happens. So each person in the Trinity exists for the glory of the other. Have you ever thought about that? You, you think about how the Trinity works. You've got the Holy Spirit who exists to glorify the Son. You've got the Son who exists to glorify the Father. And you've got the Father who's constantly giving the glory back to the Son. It just keeps going in a circle all around and around and around. And they're just constantly doing that together. And here we are. His creation. And the reason we exist is that He may share that with us. Now that's pretty exciting news. Because I don't know about you, but I'm really happy about that. So if a disciple's purpose is to carry on the work of Jesus, and Jesus says, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. Then we certainly can't have any higher purpose than to glorify God. Can we? Well, no. To magnify God, to make him known, to put him on display. But that only happens. Again, I'm just. I'm just using the context of the first couple of verses. That only happens when that's preeminent upon our heart and mind. When what we, what we think about, when we think about why we're here and why we exist is to glorify God. That's why we're here. But we don't fulfill that unless He's preeminent. Now, let's just go all the way back to the Old Testament and think for a minute. So if everything that I've said so far is true, which it is, by the way. Then when God calls his people. Out of bondage in Egypt, he frees them, delivers them from bondage. He he carries them out of Egypt across the Red Sea and. Brings them out into safety and security. And then, the first thing he says to them, the very first thing he says to a people that he created to share his love and his joy with, who would then be the conduits of that love and joy to other people who wouldn't be able to glorify God unless he was preeminent in their life, the first thing he says to them is number one on the list have no other gods above me 
Well, I wonder why he said that. Because he's simply reinforcing everything that I've said. Worship me. Don't worship other things. Don't get sidetracked. Anything other than me is counterfeit. This is the reason why the world is filled with so many people that don't have satisfaction and don't have purpose, don't have joy, don't exist in perfect love. Why we struggle so bad? Because we're running around relying upon counterfeit things. This is why there's so much of this supposed Christian life that's just anemic. It's just existing. It's flat. That's why there's so little power. That's why we find ourselves so oftentimes dissatisfied and frustrated. But when you read the Bible, that doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense at all. If God created us, that He might share what He has and enjoys with us, something is drastically wrong. Why is why is it that maybe you're here this morning and you've asked this question? You've said, why is it that my relationship with God never seems to be what it ought to be? Why do I, why do I feel like I, I struggle? Why? It's like, it's like being in a, a marriage where you're constantly struggling to love your spouse and to and to get things on the right track. But no matter how hard you try, you always feel like you're spinning your wheels. Like you just can't get there. Like, and you're thinking, maybe I'm, if I just say the right things, or if I just do the right things, or somehow I can get things on track. And I mean, that makes sense between two imperfect fallen people. But what's going on when we're, when we're not where we ought to be with God. Maybe it's because our relationship with God is not a relationship at all. I just want you to consider something this morning. I want you to consider the possibility that what you call a relationship with God could be in actuality, an agreement with God. Not a relationship. An agreement. What you tend to exist in with God is much more like, it's less like a, a loving relationship between two people who are devoted to one another and put each other before themselves. But what you experience most days is more like a mail order bride who just has a, a contractual agreement. And so although on the outside, when you go places and when you talk about things, you would be introduced as Mr. and Mrs. And it would be, this is my husband or this is my wife. But in reality, it's just a contract. 
It's not the loving relationship that it was created to be. Now what if your relationship with God was really an arrangement? Let me explain what I mean. Let's say that every day, maybe five days a week, you get up five days a week and you go to the gym and you work out and you exercise and you take care of yourself. And, and so every day you make provision. Most people who do that wake up early in the morning and they go to the gym and So you do that five days a week and you're devoted to it. But it wouldn't be uncommon for you to go an entire week and never open your Bible. That when you pick your Bible up to go to church on Sunday, you haven't picked it up since the Sunday before. And the last time it was open, it was just open to the pages to which I was preaching from. And if you happen to miss a week or two, then it was open to the place where I was preaching from two or three weeks ago. But you're in the gym every day. Would you say that that God was preeminent upon your mind? If you didn't know anything other than the conversation we've had this morning, if you looked at your life from the outside in, wouldn't you come to the conclusion that what's preeminent upon your mind is you? Is your physical appearance or your, your health? Think about how every week you get on a scale and you monitor your weight. But you pay little to no attention to your spiritual weightiness. That sounds to me like you have an arrangement with God, not a relationship. You must admit you would not appreciate being treated that way. You would feel much more like a contract bride than an actual spousal relationship. Maybe every day you get up and you go to work and your feet hit the ground and you're moving and you work hard and you work a lot and it just so happens that you have a demanding job and it takes a lot of your time and a lot of your energy and so the vast majority of your time and energy is devoted to going to work and it really doesn't matter if it's raining outside or it's sunny outside, you're going to work because that's what you have to do. And even when you don't feel good, even when you are coughing or maybe running a low-grade fever, you're going to go to work because if you don't go to work, it's going to cost you sick days that you don't really have to lose. And so you just tough it out and go to work because that's what you need to do. 
My question is, what if you went to work the way you come to church? What if your work ethic at your job was the equivalent of your work ethic at church? Would it be an improvement? Would your boss call you in to give you a raise or would you be quickly facing termination? Does it sound like that the glory of the Father is preeminent upon our mind or does it sound like something else probably is? It sounds more like a, an agreement an arrangement than it does a real relationship. I don't know about you, but I know that in the relationships in my life that I consider real relationships, that those relationships exist in such a way that they have a certain preeminence. That there are certain voices in my life that if they, when they speak, they hold priority over other voices. And so if my wife needs me, it doesn't matter what else I'm doing. If my children require my attention or my presence, it's not as if, you know, they just have to find a place in the queue to eventually get to the top. That's not how it works. See, with relationship comes some level of preeminence. I mean, you'd all agree with that. Because everyone in the room has some form of relationship and all relationships have some form of preeminence. I'm simply saying, ask yourself the question, what is the preeminence of this relationship that you're in with God? In 1 John... Chapter 2, verse 4. The Scripture says that a person who says, I know God and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name or cast out demons in your name or done wondrous things in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is living without regard for the law. That's what lawlessness is. You know what that is. It's like living in the Wild West or living in Gulfport after Katrina. Lawlessness. And so, remember, the Bible says that if you say you know Him, but you don't keep His commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Jesus said there's going to be a lot of people that say, Lord, Lord, and He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You were practicing lawlessness. Now, clearly they were doing something because they're saying, well, I was, 
I prophesied in your name. I did all these things. Well, they were doing something, but what they were doing, God considered lawlessness. He considered that as living with no regard for the law, which is offensive to God. Considering the fact that the reason He created us is to share with us what He already had and that we would be the sharers of all the things that He would share with us, right? So if, if you had gone to all of the painstaking limits that God has gone to to establish this whole opportunity for relationship and someone chose to live in a lawless way, you would understand that that would be offensive to God. So later on in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire and there, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you have a relationship with God or do you have an agreement with God? Is it an arrangement? Or is it a relationship? Now I say all that just for us to focus our attention on the fourth verse of John 17 because that's all we're going to talk about and we'll be done. Is verse 4. Because I want you to just Look at one thing Jesus says. One central truth and what the implications are in our life. Jesus says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now we've already painstakingly established the fact that God created us to glorify Him. And the way we glorify Him is by putting Him on display, by making much of Him, by sharing His love and by sharing the joy that He has created us for Him to share with us. And so we're just conduits of all of that, right? And so Jesus, in one sentence, is going to answer so many questions for us. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. So all of our questions about, well, well, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, what, do, what does that exactly look like? I mean, how, do, how am I supposed to do it if I don't know exactly what it is? Well, here you go. I've glorified you in the earth. How have I done that? I've finished the work which you have given me to do. Hmm. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. So if you died today... Could you say that you finished the work that God's given you to do? If today happens to be your last day in this life, can you say, I'm, I'm ready to go home because I've glorified you, Lord, on the earth. I've, I've done the work that you've sent me to do. I know that you saved me for something. And I've 
done that. Jesus said. He's glorified the father on earth. And the way he did that was by finishing the work. That he had been given to do. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just before his death, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Same thing, different way. Well, what is the race exactly? Well, there must be a race. It must be something specific. It wasn't some ethereal thing. Because Paul didn't say, well, I've been running around. He said, I've finished the race. Now, All of us in here are smart enough to know that every race has a beginning and has an end. That if we're just running around in circles, if we just lined up on the starting gate, but no one knows where the finish gate is, well then, it's just going to be utter chaos. That's not a race. A race has to have a beginning point, and it has to have an end point. And Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the Race, not a race, the race. What race? The race that you've given me to run. So this is, this is where I'm wanting you to go. If you're not already there. If I said to you this morning, if I said, all of us in here this morning who believe that God has a plan for their life, raise their hand. Hands go up all over the room. I doubt there's very few, if any of you in here, that would say, no, I don't think God has a purpose for my life at all. Everywhere you go and everywhere you, everyone you talk to, everybody says, oh, God has a purpose for my life. God has a purpose for my life. God has a purpose for my life. Isn't that great? I don't think so. I really don't. What's so great about knowing God has a purpose for your life if you don't know what the purpose is? So let's ask a different question. Instead of saying, do you think God has a purpose for your life? Let's ask this question. Ladies and gentlemen, what is God's purpose for your life? What is it? Because that's what you need to know. Because if you don't know what the purpose is, to me, it's worse than not knowing anything at all. The worst position you could possibly be in is to be a person who says, I know that God has a purpose for my life, but I don't know what it is. That's the most incriminating position you can be in. So if you think God has a purpose, if you know God has a purpose, what is the purpose? What is it? That's important information. Oh. When I met Jesus. For the first time in my life. My my life had meaning and purpose. Isn't that nice? Not really. What is it? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? Stop saying you got purpose. Say what the purpose is. You 
See, when we say God has a plan for our lives, we're totally comfortable with that because we're all sort of in this thing together. It's the macro thing. We're all in this. We all can say that. But where things get squirmy is when it comes down to you. I'm not asking about all of us. I'm asking you, 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 each of you. What is your purpose in life? Why are you here? Why do you exist? Because that's where you're going to find meaning. If you want satisfaction, you've got to find out why am I here? What did God make me for? Let's figure that out and live for that. Jesus knows. Because you know what He says right off the bat? He says, I've, I've glorified you on earth. I know what my purpose is. I've glorified you on earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Now, I'm pretty sure that we said the purpose of a disciple is to do what? To continue the work of Jesus. Isn't that what we said? And what was the work of Jesus? To glorify God on the earth. Because He said, I finished that work. So we could say it this way. The, the way to glorify God on earth is by doing the work that He's given you to do. That's the way to glorify God on the earth. Doing the work that He's given you to do. But if that's true, which it is, then what's also true is the way to dishonor God is to not do the things that He's given you to do. What's offensive to God, what God considers lawlessness, is to live as if the law doesn't matter. Because lawlessness is everybody just does whatever they want to do. And guess what they do? They do whatever they want to do, but we all call it the same thing. Relationship. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus thinks that. I don't think everything Jesus has said to these 11 men in the last four chapters would indicate to me in any way, shape, or form that we could just wing it. Mm -mm. I think clearly He knows there's a very specific task at hand. Very specific. And that there's a purpose for these 11 men and every person that will come after them. And He's laying all of this out. It's not new information. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 43 in the Old Testament, God says, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory. I create them for my glory. How are they going to glorify me? I'm going to share what I have in the Trinity with them, and they're going to share it with other people, and it's going to glorify me. It's going to make much of me. It's going to magnify me. Because guess what? Guess what, guess what I did 
as soon as I discovered the perfect love of God and the fullness of joy, well, what do you think I did? I told everybody I knew because I had discovered something amazing. I figured out for the very first time that I was here for a reason, that I, that I didn't just say, well, I, was, I had a purpose. I knew what my purpose was. My purpose is to continue the work of Jesus. But my, oh my, how the enemy's been busy, hasn't he? Distracting and deflecting and uh, keeping us all sideways, running around doing all sorts of things. Filling our lives with all sorts of things. Good things, not bad things. To keep the main thing from being preeminent. Yeah, that's right. And the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is, is that nobody, nobody is going to stand before God and go, what? You're kidding me. Really? No. Mm -mm. That's not going to happen. You're going to stand before God and immediately you're going to realize I did love the gym more than you. I gave my whole life to my job. You know, it's good to go to the gym. It's good to have a job. It's good to do a lot of things. It's good to be it's good to coach your kids' athletic teams. It's good to work on homework. It's good to have dreams. It's good to pursue things. But it's not the best thing. It's not the best thing. And we'll all know immediately that we blew it. We got distracted. Paul's concerned about the Corinthian church. And he says to these believers who probably all think they're in a relationship and I'm sure some of them were in an agreement. He says to them in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I fear, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I bet you the last time you said, God, why? Why are we always struggling? Why don't I ever get where I want to go spiritually? What? Why does this relationship seem so hard? I'll bet you anything. Whether that was yesterday or two years ago, I will promise you in that moment, your mind was so clouded. You had took, taken something so simple and made it so complex. And you were just overwhelmed with all these things. 
And God's simply saying, it's very simple. Just glorify me. Glorify me. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, later on in this chapter, will get there in a couple weeks. He's going to say to his father, he's going to say, I, I sanctify myself. Sanctify them. He says, I set myself apart for a special purpose. The purpose of going to the cross. The purpose of being the redemption. The purpose of opening up the opportunity for us to be connected with God. That's his. He says, I sanctify myself. Sanctify them. Set them apart for a purpose. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you were saved, if you belong to Jesus this morning, do you understand? You have been sanctified. You've been set apart for a purpose you need to know what the purpose is. That it's not to live for some lesser thing. That you have been made by the God of the universe for a reason. And you will never find fulfillment in anything else. There is nothing else in the world. You cannot make enough money. You cannot get yourself in good enough shape. You cannot climb the corporate ladder. You can't raise good enough kids. You can't win enough games. You can't do anything that's ever going to satisfy you apart from the reason that you're here and the purpose for which you've been made. So two things, and we're done. Glorifying God, this mission, always, always involves others. Always. Not 99% of the time, not 99.9% of the time, 100% of the time, it always involves others. You cannot glorify God unless you are a conduit by which His joy and love flow. And it, got, it has to flow somewhere. So it has to be. It has to be. And what do you do? Well, what, what's happening? His mission is always for others. It involves others. Reaching them and teaching them to keep His Word. Why? It's simple, so that they don't live in lawlessness. So that they learn how to live in love and how to experience joy. In other words, it's all in how you look at it, ladies and gentlemen. When God says, put no other gods above me, you can look at that as a burdensome, cumbersome rule that you have to follow. Or you can look at that as a word from a loving Father who loves you and says, listen, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't ever put anything above me because if you do, it's going to be harmful for you. You're going to flounder. You're going to wind up with a bunch of regrets. I mean, think about it. What if these young people that are in here this morning, what if they grabbed a hold of this? What if at a young age this morning, they realized God's purpose for them. They didn't have all the regrets we have. 
looking back and saying, all those years, I just floundered around. I didn't know why I was here. I didn't know what my purpose was. Lamentations chapter 3. The Scripture says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's search out and examine our ways. And then the next verse, interestingly enough, is where we started. It says, let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Just like Jesus. Who says, Father in heaven, glorify me. That I may glorify you. You have a purpose. You're here for a reason. Let's stand and bow our heads.